Well, good morning again. Again, my name is Sean, one of your teaching elders here. And this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 29. It's printed for you on page 10 and 11 uh, in your bulletin. Boys and girls, I apologize. It is just too long to do a children's translation of 29 verses. So I apologize if you don't have one of those, but I still will be talking to you uh, during the sermon. And for the rest of us, this is a very long passage. We're not going to be reading it all at once either, so we can actually pay attention to it. So part of a sermon's purpose, one of, the, one of the things that a sermon is about is I'm demonstrating in many ways how to share the gospel. I, in many ways, I'm showing you how to speak with people about the gospel. And Harry was showing you how to talk with people about the gospel. And so oftentimes, when it comes to communicating what we believe, we use insider language and concepts, things that are part of church world. You know, we can call them shop talk outside of church. We do this in our offices. We do this in our families. Kind of little linguistic shortcuts that we know what they mean, but people who aren't part of the group don't necessarily know what they mean. And so when we use these terms, insider language or shop talk, and we bring visitors, often they have no idea what we're talking about. Just for example, if, if you're an unchurched adult, don't have any religious background whatsoever, and you hear the word quiet time, justification. You know what you do when you're typing, you make everything line up on one side, right? You know, fellowship. Oh yeah, wasn't that movie about those little guys? See, we use these terms in church world, and we know what they mean, but people who aren't part of our tribe, so to speak, they have no idea what we're talking about. See, when we communicate using insider language, we make visitors feel like outsiders. And and one of the easiest ways to express love for someone, I mean, super low-hanging fruit, the easiest ways is to communicate in someone else's style instead of demanding that they listen in yours. And so one of the things I want to do today is I want to demonstrate how to bring the good news of Jesus using concepts and vocabulary geared towards our unchurched neighbors. And I want to do that by asking a question. How do you deal with rejection? How about someone challenging you? Think of the last time someone challenged you, contradicted you, triggered you. How'd you respond? Are you happy with how you handled it? Or do you wish you could have handled that better? See, maybe like me, I bet in many of those instances, you'd like a redo. And what I want to do today, instead of giving us a redo, is I want to show us from the text that Christianity gives us the resources to be the type of person who responds well to that junk the first time. In fact, this passage from Mark will show us that Christians can befriend and love those who reject Christianity better than many in our culture can love and accept those who reject them. In this Mark passage, what we're going to see is Jesus, we're going to see how Jesus and the people around him deal with the challenges of life. And I have challenges, and now you have challenges, so I would like to see how Jesus deals with that. So if you would, would you please, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're just going to read the first 13 verses of Mark 6 together. This is God's Word. He, being Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself more and more to us in this text. You would show us by your spirit how this text applies to us and that we would indeed apply this text to our lives and to our communities. Lord, show us Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. And please be seated. So again, this is a really big text, and we're going to be adding even some more verses in later. I can't possibly cover everything in here, and we're not going to try to do that. But I am going to try to kind of put everything under two broad concepts. The concepts of rejection and the concept of identity. And that leads us to our theme for today, which is this. Our deepest commitments are the fuel of our life. And I hope to demonstrate that for those of you who are note takers. I want to demonstrate that by answering three questions. One, who is Jesus? Two, what, who are the disciples? And three, who is Herodias? And we'll get to her in our second reading. So the first question, who is Jesus? Well, we see here that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus shows up in his hometown, we're told. And right before this in Mark's gospel, he has had some very successful campaigns, I guess we can call them. People are are receiving him well. They're thronging about him. They're cheering him. They're very excited he's there. And and based on that high, he then shows up in his hometown. And verse 2 tells us they're shocked, even indignant as he teaches, as he ministers. You know, when I became a Christian in my teens, one of the things that really impressed me about Scripture, that really impressed me about the Bible, was the fact that Jesus had problems. You know, if I were making this stuff up, if I were writing this, I would feel this burden to be Jesus' PR guy. Like, only good things. Let's not talk about any bad things. Let's make him look as good as possible, right? But passages like this, we see, man, people are up in Jesus' grill. He had issues. People were after him. I mean, we see here that people are insulting, they're offensive, they're even mean. The English changes it, so we don't really notice it when we read it, but in verses 2 and 3, it's very uh, easily to see in the original, the pronouns he and him are, are not there. Instead, the pronouns this and that are there. Just imagine in your own conversation, when you choose to refer to a person as a this or a that, rather than a he or a him, that's not very nice, is it? You're dehumanizing them. It's derogatory. It's depersonalized. The way I, the way I hear it in my head is I, I hear like an early 2000s, you know, high school mean girl. Like, um, why is this talking to me? That's what's going on here. They replace in all these verses, who is this? Is, isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this? 
And then they get downright offensive when they say the son of Mary in verse 3 rather than the son of Joseph. Again, not a big deal for our culture. In their culture, a patriarchal culture, he didn't refer to someone by their mom. You refer to them by their dad unless who their father was was in doubt. They're basically calling Jesus a really bad name here. We don't know who your daddy is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. These are the kind of words that usually get a fist as a response. And then to top it off, you've got to love this. They are offended. Literally, it's the Greek word scandalizo, where we get scandalized from, at Jesus. So let me get this straight. We get to insult you. We get to be really offensive. But then, oh, we get to be offended by you. It's not a good reception for Jesus. This isn't like one of the things you want to highlight as, hey, here's a good example of why you should follow Jesus. But notice, Jesus doesn't lash out, as I would. Jesus wonders at them. He has an SMH moment, and he moves on to another place. See, I want to land on this. Jesus has been rejected. He has been insulted and challenged. And yet, what do we see? Jesus has the fortitude, the internal strength, not to lash out, not to insult back. That is not easy, is it? It's not easy for me. Maybe it's easy for you. You know, boys and girls, when someone makes fun of you at school, or when someone makes fun of you at home, you want to be mean back, don't you? Guess what? Your parents do too. You can ask them. They'll tell you. Now, I remember one time when I was up in Boston where we used to live, and I had just gone grocery shopping, and I got in my car, and I was, a van was parked right next to me, so I could not see this way what's coming down. You said, what do you do in that situation? Well, it's a parking lot, not a street, right? So you put it in reverse, and you come out real slowly, right? This is like driving 101, so the person coming can see you, and they stop and let you out because it's a parking lot, not a street, right? Well, this wonderful New Englander um, honked at me, so I stopped. And then that wasn't enough. They got right behind me, shook their fist, and just laid on their horn. How dare I back out? So what did I do? My mental process was, well, that just won't do. This car is paid for, and I'm mad. So I just kept going. And they literally had to, like, floor it and leave two strips of rubber to get out of my way because I was not stopping for them. They made their machine make a noise at me. How dare they? And I'm like, uh, as I said before, a professional Christian. How do you amateurs handle it? Hmm? We don't do well with insults, do we? At all. And that is not Jesus. Look with me at verse 4. They insult Jesus. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, what I want to land here is not what he said, but what he said. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus proclaims, I am a prophet. Already in Mark, Jesus has said he's the Messiah. That's a religious word that means a special rescuer. And earlier, Jesus has already identified himself as God. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus has said, I am God. He has said, I am the special rescuer. And now he says, I am a prophet. See, because Jesus' identity is firm, he has an internal strength to deal with these challenges and offenses. Now, you may not believe him, and that's not the point. The point is that Jesus believes this about himself. Jesus believes he has received an identity from God, and that identity empowers him to live well 
when insulted and rejected. You know, so many in our culture call for tolerance. They call for us to coexist. You've seen the bumper stickers. And we see that Jesus is actually able to live that way. In the face of insult, in the face of opposition, he is both kind and accepting. I mean, if this actually happened, if this is a true account of historical events, we are forced to ask, do we have the kind of identity that gives us the strength to be the kind and accepting people that we want to be? Jesus does. Because he is who he says he is. His identity is anchored and secure. See, and Christianity teaches us that through Jesus, we gain resources to be the people we wish we were. Which we see in the next section, in verses 7 through 13, we see that who are the disciples? The disciples are who Jesus says they are. So Jesus gets his boys here, he pairs them up, and he sends them out with authority, the text tells us. That's one of those religious words, authority. What does that mean? Does it mean, oh, badge and a weapon to enforce what the badge represents, right? Authority. No. Authority means this. I want you to think about how the word bandwidth has come from the IT world, and now it's in our, the business world or in our, our, our society, for instance, you might hear someone on a Zoom call since they're working from home now, and someone says, hey, I need you to pick up this slack on this project. Do you have the bandwidth to do that? What are they asking in that question? Can you do this? Do you have the competence? Do you have the ability? Do you have the time? Can you do this? Do you have the resources? And that's exactly what authority means here, what we say bandwidth for today. Jesus gives his people capacity competence, ability, resources to accomplish the mission he gives them. In other words, they are who he says they are. I name you, I empower you, I send you. And that identity empowers their ministry and gives them resilience. Now, for those of you who would call yourself Christians, I got, I got to ask you something. Did you notice that Jesus sends them out unprepared and unprovisioned? on purpose, and it turns out okay. That teaches us something about our own efforts at evangelism, doesn't it? We don't have to have everything lined up. Oh, they might ask me this question. I better study some more. We don't have to have everything lined up, all of our ducks in a row, to go talk to our neighbors about Jesus. It's okay to be unprepared and still be on mission if our identity is rooted in who Jesus says we are. Now, we're going to come back to this identity stuff for the disciples. But for it all to make sense, we have to look at another another character named Herodias. So, just to review, Jesus is who he says he is. That identity gives him strength. The disciples are who Jesus says they are. That identity gives them strength. And now we're going to see that Herodias is who she says she is. And we're going to ask, does that identity give her strength? So you don't need to stand, but I'm going to read the rest of our text now. Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it. This would be the mission that Jesus sent all his disciples on. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so the scene shifts. We go from Jesus in his hometown to Jesus sending out his disciples to this big chunk about John the Baptist and his death at the hands of Herod. If this is just a haphazard collection of stories, perhaps even myths, who cares? But... If this text has been put together by an intelligence with a purpose to reveal truth to us, then these narratives are connected. And the connection is the royal family, the ruling family. The Romans were an occupying force at this time in history. They ruled Palestine along with the entire Mediterranean basin with an iron fist. And under their military rule, the political leader of Palestine was King Herod. So technically, Herod at this time was the king of the Jews, politically. And by the standards of Judaism, his people, so to speak, and by the standards of most of humanity, he and his family were messed up. Herod married his brother's wife while his brother was quite alive and still married to Herodias. And John the Baptist confronts them with a long-accepted view of marriage and human sexuality. And suddenly he's narrow-minded and on the wrong side of history. And clearly we see that Herodias cannot handle this challenge from John. In verse 17, Herod imprisoned John because of Herodias. Verse 24, Herod executes John because of Herodias. Why? Well, look with me at verse 19. It tells us. It says, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She has a grudge. It means what you think it means. She is set against John the Baptist. Now we could easily judge her. We tend to do that in church world. But let's be candid. We can easily put ourselves in her shoes, can't we? Nobody gets to tell me how to live my life. Herod and I aren't hurting anyone. It's none of his business. Stay out of our bedroom. Who does John think he is? See, John the Baptist has the audacity to look in from the outside and judge their family, their marriage, their lifestyle choices. Herodias responds just like we would. Don't tell me how to live my life. 
See, our culture says we create our own identity. We do what we want and no one gets to judge. In other words, we are who we say we are. Sociologist Charles Taylor calls this identity. Hey, girls and boys, you may not understand identity, but you've lived this and you've seen this. We've talked about this before. You guys are exposed to this idea of identity through that wonderful modern philosopher, Elsa from Disney's Frozen. What does she say in her famous song? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. I get to be who I want. I get to do what I want. And you can't tell me how to live my life. And that's exactly what this text is talking about in Mark 6. Our world says, Herodias says, we get to say who we are. Nobody else does. John the Baptist challenged Herodias' identity, and she does not like it. This is why our country is so polarized, by the way. We no longer hold beliefs that we can then debate and defend and have a friendship with someone who holds a different belief. That is over. We don't do that anymore. What does our culture do? We don't hold beliefs. We have identities. You don't get to debate an identity. You either accept it or you reject it. And so in people's hearts, when we say, I disagree with you, they hear, I reject you. And that makes it very hard, doesn't it, to have people of different beliefs It makes us a very polarized country. And because we are all deep down fragile about our own identity, we don't like to feel rejected, and so we push people who are different away. See, in this text, John challenged Herodias' identity. Just as Nazareth did to Jesus, just as Jesus says is going to happen to his disciples. And here's the question. Does Herodias' identity provide her resources to respond well to this challenge? Because we saw that Jesus did, and we see him give his disciples bandwidth to respond well. Does hers work for her? Or does she demonstrate fragility, being fragile? Well, Jesus is challenged and rejected, and rather than being fragile, he responds well. The disciples are given bandwidth to respond well. And Herodias, how does she respond? Well, notice, it's not enough for her that John is in her prison. She wants him dead. Her identity is so fragile, she can't tolerate his views. She has to destroy him to maintain her identity. So, instead of the usual professional lewd dancers that are hired for such an occasion, in verse 22, Herodias makes her own daughter be a lewd dancer. She's, in that culture, she has just sacrificed her daughter's public reputation to manipulate her own husband. Yuck. Why? Because Herodias is inventing cancel culture right here at this moment. John can't be disagreed with. He can't even be silenced in prison. He has to be destroyed. Cancel. She must have recompense because he violated her identity. See, when faced with the offense and challenge from John, she can't let it go. She can't coexist. Her identity is too fragile for real tolerance. John must be destroyed. Now, this would be very easy for me to get up. All right, here I get to do my pastoral harangue on cancel culture. But if I'm honest and look into my own heart, I see this response in me. But it's not the person I want to be. 
Is this who you want to be? See, creating our own identity, being who we say we are, results in a fundamental insecurity in our heart. We are fragile. We cannot abide challenges, and so we lash out. Now, in case you're kind of hiding from this or thinking, wow, fragility, that's just like some sort of ancient thing, or that's a progressive thing. We all know they're snowflakes, or that's a generation thing, a generation Z thing. We We all know that they, the internet's messed them up. Before you punt this on someone else, let's try this one on for size. So, because of the pandemic, we have masks. For some of us, me especially, when I am forced to wear a mask, asked to wear a mask, it is crazy. I experience these feelings of anger, betrayal, disgust. I feel in my heart a deep wound against my personal liberty and my personal agency. I do. From a piece of cloth. Those feelings are not coming from a place of strength. My reaction reveals my own fragility. See, I live in this culture too, and it has created a deep insecurity. Pray for me. A piece of cloth should not make me feel that way, but it does. See, and note the difference in this narrative. Jesus receives an identity from his Father. It fortifies him. Jesus' disciples receive an identity from Jesus. It fortifies them. For our culture, we're like Herodias. We don't receive an identity. We achieve an identity. Our culture says that you create your own identity, but to do that, it puts pressure on you to perform. You've got to go out there and get it. So what do we do? We build our identity around our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations, and if we don't achieve those dreams, hopes, and aspirations, we feel like failures. You see, when we name ourselves, when we become the source of our own identity, our dreams become demands. Good things cease to be good and become vital for our identity. And that makes us fragile, makes us deeply insecure, makes us petty, makes us mean. All while longing for a world of tolerance and coexistence. See, we get a glimpse of our culture's idea of identity in this text. Herodias has achieved Mrs. Herod. She is the queen. In a patriarchal culture, she is one of the most powerful women in the land. Yet she's so insecure, so fragile, that she can't handle a minor challenge from that, to that identity from someone like John the Baptist. And if you're not in church world, who's John the Baptist? John the Baptist is some bug-eating, hairy cloak-wearing recluse from the sticks. He is not a, the kind of person who wins friends and influences people. She should, based on being the queen, she should be able just to brush him off. But she can't. She can't handle even a minor challenge to her identity. You know Why? Because ultimately, we cannot give ourselves an identity. Again, going back to Charles Taylor, he points out that in spite of what we claim, what, we don't get to name ourselves. We are influenced and named from the outside. Whatever community we are aligned with, we take on their definition of what it means to be a good person. Whatever tribe we're part of, they tell us what is good, and we have to perform to be a good person. In case you're not tracking with me, as, you, as many of you know, I, we lived in Boston for about five years. And one of the things that was really interesting is that I got no problem doing the whole recycle bin thing. We do the recycle bin thing. But it, it was very interesting that if you did not put your recycle bin out on recycle day, it was completely acceptable to shame you, to make you feel bad, 
to be passively aggressive and aggressively aggressive to make sure you put that recycle bin out. It was a means of public righteousness. That community had said a good person does this, a bad person doesn't. You are a bad person if you don't. And like every culture in the history of the planet, what do we love to do? We all love to pronounce woe upon the malefactors, right? We're good, you're bad, I get to shame you. And so they shamed people who didn't do it. And every tribe does that. We all do it. Which means... If you've been here for our most recent sermon series about goat dragging, that achieving an identity is a secular form of goat dragging. I have to perform and jump through hoops so you and this tribe will accept me and tell me who I am. And if I don't live up to what you say is a good person, you will exclude me and shame me, all while claiming to be tolerant and inclusive. That's our culture. And that's us. And it leaves us fundamentally insecure and fragile. It also means that we have a really hard time being in relationship with people who are from a different tribe or have different standards. If we say this is what a good person does and we work real hard to do it so our tribe will call us good and we meet someone who has different standards and so they don't care about our standards, we feel a rejection of our identity. We feel an insecurity and so we eschew people like that and we become more and more polarized. See, our culture's idea of identity, it doesn't give us the resources to get along with each other, to build the accepting society that we all want. But Mark shows us an alternative way. He shows us in verses 7 through 13 that there's actually a fourth question. Who are Christians? And the answer is Christians are who Jesus says they are. See, through the gospel, an identity is received instead of achieved. So our culture is rooted in the enlightenment. Remember that term from high school a long time ago, the enlightenment, or remember the idea of humanism? Well, basically, put those together, and basically, humanity has been on this about 500-year-long project of trying to find meaning and purpose through rationality. If we can just measure it, duplicate it, manufacture it, understand it, we can heal our hearts. That's enlightenment humanism, and that's, we've been on that project for 500 years. And it hasn't worked. And that's not me saying that. The, the secular philosopher Nietzsche pointed this out 200 years ago. says, it doesn't work. Instead, philosophers now look at that project and they say, you know what? Humans just have to live with purposelessness. You just have to live with this directionlessness of life. Girls and boys, many of you get to start school again this week if you're on the hybrid model. Yay, very excited in our house to actually go back to school. But imagine, boys and girls, if you were the new kid every day. We've talked about this before. How would that make you feel if you were the new kid every single day? You're unsure of where to go. You don't know what happens next. You're not sure if this teacher lets me do this or not. Where am I supposed to sit? Where do the cool kids sit? Where do the uncool kids sit? Imagine if every day was like that and it never got better. That's what philosophers are telling us all. That's what it's like to live in this culture. We just kind of just feel this, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to perform for? I just feel very insecure and unsure and and directionless. See, but opposed to that, in verse 7, Jesus offers to his people sentness. He says, I commission you, I send you, and I give you bandwidth to do it. We receive an identity based on his mission. We receive an identity by grace through Jesus Christ. See, when God puts his approval on us through Jesus, when God tells us who we are, it sets us free from fragility. 
We, we receive an identity in the gospel that gives us an internal strength and the resources to be the accepting, tolerant people we wish we were, leading to a society that we wish we had. And that's not just me being preacherly. Look with me at verse 7. When Jesus' disciples encounter opposition, when they're confronted by someone who objects to them, when, when, when they encounter someone who rejects their identity, who rejects their mission, what does Jesus tell them to do? Does he tell them to call down fire from heaven and judge them? Nope. Silence them. Cancel them. Make them pay. Nope. He could have quoted Elsa from Frozen like I did and said, let it go. But instead, Jesus goes with Taylor Swift and says, shake it off. See, there's a strength to this received identity from Jesus. A strength that says, we disagree, and it's a big deal. But I can still love you and coexist. See, isn't that the world you want? See, if you truly value tolerance and and freedom and equality and justice that nobody can tell me how to live identity we see in our culture, can't carry that freight, can't get us there. But Christianity provides the bandwidth to befriend and love those with whom we disagree because Christians are rooted in an identity given by Jesus We don't have to perform for our identity, so it gives us a gravitas instead of fragility, so we can accept it when people reject us. So let me wrap this up. So the message of Christianity is that by his life, Jesus has achieved an unshakable identity. He lived the life that God says, do this to be a good person. Jesus did it. You want to put it in these terms? Jesus jumped through all the hoops. And the message of Christianity is that when you place your faith and trust in him, it's not that we get Jesus into us. It's that we get into Jesus. We are united to him by faith. And so what is true of him is true of us. God looks upon us as, hey, you're in my son. You too have jumped through all the hoops. You are a good person in Jesus. You are secure in Jesus. You are you, are, you don't have this fragility in your heart because of Jesus. See, and it's not just that Jesus gives us all that. Jesus understands what we go through. Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, he experienced this directionlessness of life. He experienced this lack of purpose. He experienced these question marks. So much so that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus knows what it's like, and then in his resurrection, Jesus fixes it. And united to him, we're delivered from that purposelessness. We're given a sentness to life, and we're given the bandwidth to achieve it by his grace. He gives us identity. He gives us purpose. You know, I said at the beginning that this passage from Mark will show us that Christians can befriend and love those who reject Christianity better than many in our culture can love and accept those who reject them. See, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus... He names you. He gives you an identity. And from that place of strength, we can be the tolerant people we want to be, leading to a society of equality that we really want. That's the power of the gospel to change the world because it changes people. Do you want that world? Then let Jesus change you, even now. Embrace him by faith. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you name us. 
that you call us daughter, you call us son, that united to Jesus, we are adopted into your family, and so you really mean it when you say child. And from that secure place of being in your very lap and calling you dad, we can deal with the challenges and the rejections and the triggers of life. Thank you for that privilege. And Lord, we pray that even now as your gospel has been proclaimed, that you would make your family bigger, that you would reach out and draw your children to yourself, that you would cause even now people to confess faith in your son Jesus, that they might become yours, receive an identity from you and walk in strength. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.